Hey everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd, and it's time for our weekly review roundup podcast, the Needle Drop podcast, where we give you some of the best segments from the Needle Drop and Fantano channels throughout the week. In this episode, we have some brand new reviews with some pretty great albums, in my opinion, what could be the best pop album of the year that is the breakthrough smash hit record that has just been dropped by Billie Eilish. Uh, A lot of people have been talking about this album. You are going to hear my thoughts on it. Also, a pretty great fusion of jazz music, electronic music, and really everything but the kitchen sink on the new The Comet Is Coming record that I'm going to be talking about in this episode. Also going to be hyping up a little bit, just a little bit, the latest Billy Woods and Kenny Siegel collaborative record, Hiding Places. Also, the latest Law Dispute album, Panorama, is out. If you're into post-hardcore and emo, you're definitely going to want to hear this record and potentially my thoughts on it. An exclusive bit from our Let's Argue series is going to be worked into the episode. We also have a few track reviews for you. One of the new Little Nas X collaborative remix featuring Billy Ray Cyrus. Of course, I'm talking about his his big viral hit, Old Town Road. And uh, also JPEG Mafia has a, a bit of a veteran leftover that he has seen fit to release titled The Who. We're going to be talking about it. So that is going to be it for this episode. Strap and get ready. Here we go. The Needle Drop Podcast. Ba-bam. And it is time for a review of the new Billie Eilish album, When We All Fall Asleep. Where do we go? This is the hugely anticipated debut album of California pop singer and songwriter Miss Billie Eilish. At this point, I don't feel like I can say anything about Billie herself that hasn't already been ingrained into you after months of media saturation and softball interviews and photo spreads of her bright baggy clothing as well as polarized opinions about her and her music from across the internet. Up until this point, I haven't really been all that wowed by Billie's music itself. While she has had some platinum hits, in my opinion, much of what she has released up until this point sounds more like an artist in development than an artist fully realized, especially on her 2017 Don't Smile at Me EP, which I mostly found to be boring outside of a few key tracks. And in the midst of Billie's rise to fame, I've seen many people kind of label her or describe her as yet another melancholic pop artist in a never-ending stream of melancholic pop artists. Your Lana's and your lords. On top of it, there's been this growing skepticism surrounding Billy, with music fans questioning, how is she making her tracks? How did she blow up? How did she get to where she is today? Billy is far from a do-it-yourselfer, and her brother, who is an experienced songwriter and producer, takes part in all of her songs to some degree, so she's not exactly a homegrown success. And even though I do see industry plant as a legitimate term that can highlight the music industry's shady promotional practices, the term can just as easily be used by cynical music fans out of jealousy or a need to hate something. I know it makes all of us feel all warm and fuzzy inside when our favorite artist who's been toiling in the underground for years somehow makes it purely off their own artistic ingenuity. But for the purpose of this review, I don't really give a shit if Billie Eilish rose out of the mud or if aliens dropped her off here on the way to another planet somewhere. What ultimately matters is if this album is good. That's the ultimate question, because even if the industry did put you where you are, if your album's not good, your career's gonna flounder, you're gonna go away, just as it has happened to industry plants 
in the past. Also, this is a review. This is not an episode of This Is Your Life. So going into this album, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect. I assumed it was gonna be relatively low-key, kind of moody, a little dark. I enjoyed a few of the teaser tracks to this thing, like Wish You Were Gay, quite a bit. But what I truly wanted out of this album is what I felt I wasn't getting out of Billy's music up until this point. And that is a sound from her that is recognizable and songs that are memorable. And honestly, with When We Fall Asleep, I feel like I get that. I am pretty pleased with this record through and through. Sure, the promotional build-up to the release of this was kind of annoying and focused a lot more on Billy as an image more than Billy as a musician. But the batch of songs Billy and her brother offer on this debut are really good. In a way, it does feel odd saying that because I know I'm not necessarily in the demographic of people who this album is aimed at, at least from a marketing perspective, but for pop fans of all stripes, What's not to like on this LP? Up until this point, I've seen numerous debates online about Billy's legitimacy as an artist, but when you look at the production credits on this thing, it's pretty much just Billy and her brother. This is far away from your usual pop credits tracklist affair where you see two to three songwriters or producers per song, at least. Like the opening intro on this thing suggests, it feels like all of these tracks were created and crafted in a very intimate setting where you have two people working who know each other really, really well. Well enough to let your guard down, well enough to goof off, well enough to be vulnerable. Knowing both Billy and her brother were homeschooled, it says a lot about how close that brother-sister bond between them probably is. A lot of the lyrics on this album are kind of depressing, very sad, dark, maybe even a little edgy, and pretty salacious considering that they're coming from a 17-year-old. I mean, on the opening track, Bad Guy, you have Billy openly <laughs> this tough, rough, and buff guy, while also depicting herself as a bad guy who seduces dads. <laughs> it's, it's, um... It's a lot. But between the sticky and playful synth leads on this track and the kind of ridiculous character portrait Billy is pulling together in the lyrics, there's actually something about this track and a few others on this album too that kind of remind me of the Unicorns album, Who Will Cut Our Hair When We're Gone? Sort of like the track Tough Ghost. And again, I also get this Unicorns or lo-fi 2000s indie influenced vibe off of tracks like All Good Girls Go to Hell or My Strange Addiction, which features these multiple absurd vocal samples from the Office television series, the American version. But still, to go back to Bad Guy, it's a legitimately cool song with a creeping bass line, some subtle driving kicks, some very eerie finger snaps. The track makes me feel like I'm slowly being surrounded and closed in on, especially considering how close and hushed and intimate Billy's vocals are on this track, and many others here too. Because Bad Guy is actually a really good aesthetic tone setter for the album, as the rest of this record sticks to a pretty clear production blueprint, but still offers a pretty dynamic and varied tracklist that prevents the flow of this thing from going stale. But still, generally across this album, there is a lot of bare percussion, lots of space in these instrumentals too, whether you're talking about atmosphere surrounding the instrumentation or literal gaps of silence in between the bits of instrumentation. And for songs that are so quiet and so subtle, there is a lot of thick and rumbling and intrusive bass throughout this record too. To the point where when it comes in, it's like violently shaking other bits of instrumentation around it, especially Billy's voice. The bass is 
thick, it is ribbed for my ears pleasure. It's almost like I'm listening to uh, the musical equivalent to, to like a bass boost beam. But the sound is still really good. It doesn't sound like a joke. Then there are Billy's ultra quiet vocals throughout this thing. Typically singing at this volume from front to back on an entire record would just leave me utterly turned off. But not only do some of the great vocal melodies on this thing shine through anyway, but also the way Billy and her brother subtly manipulate her voice throughout these tracks, it turns a lot of these very low-key songs into a pretty strange and surreal experience. I mean, there are haters out there who may chalk this album up to nothing more than just like a Lord ripoff, but honestly, I have not heard production this creative on any of Lord's songs up until this point. Her debut full-length album, Pure Heroin, instrumentally was actually kind of one-dimensional and bland. Many of the production risks that she took on her next full-length LP, melodrama didn't really pan out, in my opinion. Meanwhile, this album actually features some pretty cool instrumental reference points. Of course, there are nods to modern trap production that are worked into multiple tracks on this thing. There are moments where James Blake's first few albums seem like a huge inspiration to not just the pianos, the vocals, also the balladry. Also, there are quite a few spots on this thing that just kind of sound like Kanye's Yeezus, but like with the volume and abrasiveness cut in half. For a record that on the surface seems so bare and so downplayed, there's actually a pretty wide array of influences and emotions on this thing. It's just that Billy and her brother do such a great job of condensing all of it into a very clearly defined vocal and production style. Whether Billy and her brother are doing bangers or ballads on this thing, they're putting out good tracks. We have Billy swaying and crooning over these stumbling drums and sing-along pianos on the track Zanny, which is actually a pretty fantastic cut about not doing drugs. And seeing your zombified, emotionally out of touch and selfish friends as something to cut off, not copy. And that vocal line on this track, from the secondhand smoke to the uh, not needing to take a zanny, that whole melodic line is perfect. And almost feels like a throwback to an old vocal jazz song. Which I also think turns up as an inspiration on the track Wish You Were Gay. A track that lyrically speaking is also kind of tragic but hilariously frank. It's a glorious piano tune with an acoustic intro, a smash hook, essentially about a romantic disconnect over a difference in sexual orientation, which is already an intriguing topic on its face, but Billy did not need to go this hard on the lyrics. The lyrics on this track are a perfect balance between being heartbreaking but also a little tongue-in-cheek, but the number play on these lyrics, the way she's descending from five and down or twelve and down, it just adds so much character to the track and it, it's a track that was already good. Also the crowd samples on this track, the cheering kids, the laughing adults a la Father John Misty, one of the best and most expressive vocal performances on the entire record. What is not to love about this track? Is it just that it's quiet? Come on. There are tracks on this thing where Billy is approaching much heavier and darker topics, like on the suicidal Listen Before I Go, where she depicts herself as leaving and saying goodbye and saying sorry, apologizing. She's going up to a rooftop and then going down. I love the dreary and sparse piano chords on this thing, the insane and creative James Blake-esque vocal edits, the ambient and droning tones that sort of swell in and out throughout the instrumentals, the 
a very disturbing sample of first responder vehicles at the very end of the song, adding to the tragedy of what the track is about. Meanwhile, the sparkly acoustic instrumental on the track I Love You feels like a cross between like some 2007 era grizzly bear and like Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, as part of the vocal melody line on this track resembles very much that of the chorus on that Leonard Cohen song, but it kind of reaches a different conclusion. And the ambiance surrounding this track is gorgeous. It's pristine. It's a lot of space, but it sounds so crisp and clean and clear. Even though this is a very subtle and quiet album, I can tell that, you know, either Billy's brother is like a master producer or just no expense was spared in the creation of this album. Although this record is not just all chilly atmospheres and bummers, though. There is the track, You Should See Me in a Crown. Your silence is my favorite sound. Which is easily one of the most devilish and exciting bangers of 2019. No question, no question, no question, no question. I have no question. Questions between the twittering percussion, wavy and aggressive bass, and also like dentist drill synthesizers whirring away. There is also Bury a Friend, where the Kanye influences I mentioned earlier kind of come through in full force, as instrumentally this track seems to borrow a lot from his Yeezus single Black Skinhead. I mean, look, this thing is far from a perfect album. There are some tracks that I don't care for as much as others, uh, songs that hit a bit of a lull for me. In general, I think the record could use a bit more oomph, especially in the second half. And even though Billie has done a great job of defining herself on this record, she still does wear her very obvious and contemporary influences on her gigantic sleeves. I think the song When the Party's Over is a pretty decent ballad, but I find the atmosphere and production surrounding the track to be a little bit more bland and uneventful than that of many other tracks here. The pristine atmosphere of the song kind of reminds me of a Sam Smith song and not in the best way. Then there's the track 8, which is a bit of a head scratcher for me still after multiple listens to this record. It features the sad, lazy day, tiny acoustic chords, Billy singing in a very strange baby voice in the intro. The track has a lot of weird, memorable bells and whistles and a very cutesy tune that plays throughout, but for the most part it feels like a mouth formed song that doesn't entirely know what it wants to be, but it's it's still, I guess, a, a bit of an uplifting palate cleanser in between all these very heavy and dark ballads. Then there's the peculiar and kind of cinematic instrumental on the track Ilo Milo, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. It was titled after a 2010 puzzle game I've never played before. But still, even though I am in love with the instrumental aesthetic of this track, it is one of the more brief cuts on the album that I think could have used a bit more building out. But even if I do have slight reservations with a handful of songs on this record, every track on this thing is at least listenable. Plus, I would argue Billy and her brother do a good job of sticking the landing on this record, too, with a dreamy and nightmarish closer that not only features some Beatles-esque vocal harmonies, but also the lyrical theme of this track seems to tie up a lot of this album's sentiments around leaving, saying goodbye, uh, possibly dying. Not only is this Billie Eilish album, in my opinion, very, very good, but it could potentially be the best pop album of the year, in my opinion. Between its balladry, its creepy effects, and creative approach to production, the incorporations of electronic music, and hip-hop, and pop, and more, I get the popularity and the promotion behind Billie and this album has poisoned the well for a lot of people, unfortunately, but don't get sucked into the extremity. This is a very sharp and catchy pop album, and it's one that doesn't jump out at you necessarily. It kind of pulls you in. And artistically, it's such a great statement for someone at the age of 17. I totally love it. Feeling a strong eight on this thing. Transition.
into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new The Comet Is Coming album, Trust in the Life Force of the Deep Mystery. This is the second full-length album from UK-based jazz trio, The Comet Is Coming, who I was turned on to last year by some viewers after my review of the best jazz album of 2018, Sons of Kemet's Your Queen is a Reptile, an excellent album that features the jazz stylings of Shabaka Hutchings, who also masterminded a 2016 album that I should have reviewed. I suck. But anyway, some viewers were telling me that because I loved Hutchings playing on that Sons of Kemet record, I will most likely enjoy his input in this other group that he is a part of. The Comet is coming. And also the group presents a pretty exciting fusion of jazz and electronics. And it just so happens that they put out a record the year after I found out about their existence, so why not talk about it? And I'm pretty glad I strayed into this album because it's a really great combination of everything. Jazz does certainly sit at the root of nearly everything the trio does, but they somehow effectively fuse it into a successful space rock excursion, some sax-led freak hip-hop, an almost dubstep-inspired jam, some neo-psychedelic jazz rock, and the third track of this thing, which I could really only describe as propulsive, kraut, Rockian, new wave, psych, jazz stuff. Across this relatively trim record, the band manages to cover a lot of different jazz fusions, some of which feel entirely original, or at least on the cutting edge of the cutting edge, from another dimension at the very least. I love the opening cut and closing cut on this record, both of which bookend this album with some heavy, droning, mind-bending spiritual jazz, but both have very different tones. The opening cut on this thing is much more ominous and foreboding, kind of dark, a little mystical. Sounds like it's coming straight out of uh, a psychedelic, surreal, desert, uh, spirit journey experience. Meanwhile, the closing cut on this thing is much lighter on the ears, kind of heavenly, almost like a, a sweet bit of closure after we have been through a very strange exploration of the mind, body, and soul. The atmospheres around both of these tracks feel space-age and otherworldly. The track Birth of Creation is like a weird fusion of like this steady, very meditative, almost like wonky inspired beat music. A little bit of these sweet, ringing, kind of glitchy synth keys that feel like they're pulled out of a James Blake song. And floating all over all of this, you have these very deep and low and kind of strange reed notes. I think the pacing and the progression of the track is a little stale, but I do like the aesthetic of it quite a bit. Sonically, it is a very odd marriage of these jazz reeds and electronic bits. The track Summon the Fire that I mentioned earlier, the third cut off of this thing, I love the propulsion and the thrust of this track. An incredible pulse, an incredible pace to it. Hutchings throws all of these reverb and delay-soaked saxes on top of it, just squawking and screaming away. It's like the theme song to an old kid's sci-fi show, but all of the characters, while they explore like alien territory and stuff like that, they also play jazz. The track Super Zodiac is kind of interesting because it does feature Hutchings going back to that uh, kind of aggressive, squawky, 
stuttering solo style that he performed so well on that last Sons of Kemet record, it almost feels like I'm listening to uh, the very same build or concept of a song from that album, but just with like an electronic backdrop. The song Astral Flying feels like what you would get if you took modern jazz composition and fused it with like some old school progressive synth music, something almost along the lines of a tangerine dream, with all of these spacey and very steady synth arpeggios just kind of repeating away, providing a very steady backdrop. Then there's maybe what's my favorite track on the entire record, and that is Blood of the Past, which is insanely heavy, crushing, massive, gigantic, kind of distorted, sludgy bass line that feels like it's lifted out of an Electric Wizard song. The tone of the instrumentation is dark, it is dystopian. The track eventually progresses into a great vocal feature from UK rapper Kate Tempest, who delivers a very sobering verse about what seems like the, the world that we could live in, where people understand each other and there's a greater appreciation for um, nature and so on and so forth, but yet also an acknowledgement of everything standing in the way of that, essentially. And then the finish of this thing, the way all the instrumentation kind of crashes and just heavily drones on, feels like something out of a Swans track. It's a really blistering song, the longest on the album, and really the most fulfilling. So there are a lot of tracks that individually I think are amazing on this record, though I wish there was a bit more thematic and aesthetic cohesion between a lot of these tracks across the track listing as a whole record, it does kind of feel like a, a bit of a jumble of different ideas kind of being thrown out there. For the most part, they're all well done and all well executed. Really, it's just the flow of the record feeling a little all over the place. Not to mention there are a few tracks that maybe get a little stale in their progression, a few more that uh, kind of underwhelm, like the track Unity, which I do like the intimate and very low-key vibe of that song. I feel like, you know, maybe there should be kind of a breather before the last track on this thing, but compositionally, it's not the most memorable on the album. And also for a jazz record, even if it is fused with like half a dozen or more different genres across its runtime, I do wish there was a bit more improvisation on all fronts throughout the record. A lot of it sort of seems to be left up to the sax and occasionally the percussion. But for the most part, more improvisation, more experimentation, maybe on the electronic front on this record, I think could have made it a bit more exciting. Still, I do appreciate how forward and punchy and catchy and thrilling a lot of the cuts on this record are, and I certainly appreciate how much the comet is coming is just trying to bring this genre into the next decade by bringing it together with so many other sounds and styles and doing such a great and a tasteful job. I'm feeling a decent too strong eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Billy Woods and Kenny Siegel album, Hiding Places. Since I started following his work earlier this decade, New York rapper Billy Woods transformed his once sort of spotty discography into one of the most perplexing, consistent, and heavy hitting in underground hip hop. And maybe some of you guys don't feel that way, but I do. From his powerfully dark and sobering solo works like History Will Absolve Me, as well as Known Unknowns, to his imperfect but admirable attempt at writing an album of just very short, brief rap vignettes on Today I Wrote Nothing. And I should also mention the increasingly impressive output of the duo that he's in with Elucid Arm and Hammer. Billy's rap style is admirably unique, bordering very very much on spoken word in his tone and delivery. He writes a lot of very gritty and cryptic bars that are often enhanced with an incredibly dark sense of humor, which 
a lot of times does seem sort of like a coping mechanism. And I would also say Billy could be defined by his devastating cynicism, as well as the kind of social commentary that reminds us that we live in a sick, sad world. If you're more in the market for like a feel-good Macklemore jam, Bill Billy's probably not gonna be your cup of tea. And on this album, Billy is teaming up with LA beat wizard Kenny Siegel. This dude has solo efforts going back to the 2000s. He made a few production appearances on the last Arm & Hammer album. There was already an established connection there, so it's no surprise that Billy and Kenny would have possibly worked on a full LP, which he has done before with the legendary Blockhead on two albums. And and considering the caliber of producers that Billy could be or has worked with in the past, I don't think he'd bring Kenny into the fold this deeply if he wasn't bringing some, some production heat. Some of that red hot beat heat! And so what's Billy's story this time around on this record? In many respects, it's sort of a same old, same old thing. Though that's not entirely a bad thing because I am generally pretty impressed by the grim and very defeatist stories that he works into his tracks. Lyrically, Billy continues to reveal so much and yet he himself remains in the shadows. Hiding Places is actually a very fitting title for this album because the songs off of this record feel like they were written by somebody who is like holed up in a dingy apartment. Of course like every project up until this point Billy brings some amazing and hard-hitting one-liners that are just beyond clever. Some that are incredibly self-deprecating and see Billy taking shots at his own obscurity. Too scared to write the book? Took it, put it in the hook of a song. No one listened to it. Looks like I wasn't wrong. Album dropped with a thud. Awkward silence, like when the grenade a dud. A bar that comes off of the track Steak Knives, which is a song all about getting second place. The title itself is a reference back to old game shows that gave away steak knives as consolation prizes. Billy essentially dating himself pretty heavily uh, on the uh, <laughs> subject matter and reference on this song. However, even though this track is kind of short and I do wish it went on a little bit further, I do think Billy ends it in a genius fashion where he is in a car with a friend, he's not doing too good, they're kind of talking about sharing in the same misery and experiences. Billy says the steak knives mantra out loud in the car and his friend says, what you say? And he says, it's just a line, it's just a line. Creatively portraying Billy as someone who's out there in the world having everyday interactions, but also these songs and these rhymes are just playing through his head. He's existing in his brain with these songs. These themes continue onto bars like, Dark comedy dog, I beat him in the head. Win what? I'm just trying to beat the spread. Quit my job to kick raps instead. So family meeting, everybody gotta start bringing in bread. At the end of this particular track, Billy's delivery gets even more heated, as if he's slowly going mad. With this claustrophobic beat of detuned guitars and horror movie synths and stretched out crash cymbals closing in on him. There are just so many tracks on this record that bring this infectious sense of dread that only intensifies on, on certain other cuts from this record, like the track Spider Hole, which also features uh, quite a few isolationist themes. Like, it's just me and the spider hole. That's the best part. Broad smile, copping legal weed from fake hole in the wall. I don't want to go see Nas with an orchestra at Carnegie Hall. No man of the people, I wouldn't be caught dead with most of y'all. Between the references that Billy drops, the character building, the evocative imagery, I love hearing him rap, but also he is so much of a poet, I'm almost just as pleased to read what he's written. I think Billy's poetic prowess is certainly on display on the opening lines of Houthi. Uh, Stood pooled in porchlight, cut my shadow off with a dull knife, whispered in its ear, then sent it off into the night. 
set the trap for the mice, the rats, whatever's in the pipes. Corner of your eye, the edge of the white, that's where I live, I'm set for life. <laughs> to put it in a way that I think the kids will get, a lot of what Billy Woods raps on this record actually reminds me of the past couple of Earl Sweatshirt albums. Mostly when it comes down to the lyrical themes, although there are quite a few instrumentals on this record that are very droney and lo-fi and kind of mellow. But again, there's very much an overlap in Billy's subject matter, in Earl's subject matter, between the depression, the isolationism, in how his state and all the awful things in the world around him kind of manifest themselves in these terrible things that just uh, uh, ruin his life, make him just, I guess, in a, in a sorrier state. I think that's pretty much the point of the song off of this record, A Day in a Week in a Year, which features some pretty heavy and dark stuff, even references to addiction. Look, I'm no stranger to, and I'm very much a big fan of comedy, dark comedy, laughing in the face of all the terrible things that the world is throwing at you, but the degree to which Billy embraces that on this record uh, even makes my eyes go wide at some points, like on the track Big Fake Laugh, uh, where he says, I got a letter from my insurer the other day, opened it and read it, and there's a bit of an aside where he says, this is going to be good news, said that the treatment wasn't covered, turned to the family like, I guess I'll just forget it. Just forget it. Big fake laugh. Ah ha 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 This ain't a Denzel movie. Don't try to think fast. While I don't think this album necessarily features Billy's most well-crafted set of songs in terms of structure and hooks and progressions and topical focus and all that jazz. It is certainly his most personally cutting record so far. The production on this record is generally pretty great, even if some of the structures on these songs are a little flat and repetitive to the point where they stale out some of the crisp and quality loops that uh, Kenny brings to the table. Still though, I do love the deflated and sad melodies as well as thuddy drums on the opening track Spongebob. They are a perfect tone setter for the record and also Billy's lyricism. I I love the thick, mellow, melodic, and droney spider hole. It is absolutely sad and gorgeous. I love the dreamy flute melodies on the track Houthi, as well as the sweet little jazz chord changes that are peppered throughout a few points of the song. Also the girthy juggernaut beats and massive bass hits on the track Big Fake Laugh add up into a great instrumental as well. I will say as far as cons of this album, in the grander scheme of Billy's discography, narratively, this isn't a huge change of pace, it's not a major revelation or anything. The most refreshing thing about it conceptually is the inclusion of Kenny Siegel, and while I do love his production on this album, I wouldn't say putting Billy and him together is necessarily a game changer or anything like that. I also wouldn't say there's anything particularly special about how the songs on this album are sequenced or flow. Mostly feels like a loose collection of songs that are somewhat tied together by all of the uh, emotional and personal traumas that Billy details through the lyrics. The features on this album are okay, I wouldn't say they lead to a whole lot of stunning moments either. Elucid's appearance on this thing is surprisingly short and, uh, in my opinion, doesn't provide a whole lot to the record itself. The Mother Mary appearance on here is a bit of a head-scratcher in that the track A Day I think very much needed a melodic vocal lead of some sort, given how mellow the song is, but her singing is so faint on this song, it's uh, 
uh, just almost not there in a way. Self-Jupiter of Freestyle Fellowship is actually hands down the best feature on this entire thing, uh, not only from his uh, very smart and entertaining bars in the first half of his verse, but also uh, sort of the mini acted out sketch that he plays out in his own mind over the instrumental when the uh, <laughs> instrumentation turns into a, a somewhat of a creepy soundtrack of sorts is actually pretty amazing. I think he handles this track really well. The transitions that he performs are pretty cool, although I, I will say instrumentally this particular track does feel like the biggest hodgepodge on the entire album, which consistently as I go back to it again and again and again, I just feel really kind of lost in it, and not really in a way that's all that fulfilling. Also, to take it back to the track Crawl Space that Elucid featured on, there is a bit of a weird beat switch on that track that kind of let me down a little bit in that it's not that I dislike the first beat on the track or the one that we eventually moved into, but the very bland fade that introduces the change uh, really just to me felt very, um, I don't know, underwhelming. It's like the most uneventful beat change I can imagine. There's no drama or hit or anything to that introduction of this different instrumental. Still, having said all of this, some of Billy's best material does turn up on this record. Best verses, best performances, Kenny generally on this thing pretty much kills it. As someone who's been listening to Billy's work for a little while now, I feel like this record for me is just continuing to follow him down the rabbit hole and mostly loving every minute of it. Even if after this album, little worried about the guy. Feeling a strong seven to a light eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new law dispute record, Panorama. This is the fourth full-length album from Michigan-based emo and post-hardcore outfit La Dispute, a band that separated themselves in their respective genre pretty early on with their incredibly intense poetic lyrics that built into these emotionally devastating narratives. Also, some pretty dynamic rock instrumentation behind all of this, too. This is especially true of highlights from across the band's discography, like Hudsonville Michigan, 1956, New Storms for Older Lovers, and King Park. It feels like such a long time ago at this point, but the group's last full-length LP, Rooms of the House, was a pretty admirable attempt at, uh, I guess, taking Law Dispute's sound up until that point and condensing it down a little bit, trying to write and record songs that were a bit more to the point. I mean, there were a lot of good tracks and tragic stories on this album, don't get me wrong, but I think this album's full potential was kind of kneecapped by the awkward marriage of Jordan Dreyer's uh, really intense storytelling and uh, just this more straightforward rock instrumentation, both of which just felt really at odds with one another. For a band like La Dispute, more dynamics is probably better than less in most cases, even if it does make the group's records less hooky and immediate. And Panorama seems kind of like a return to that. Fulton Street 1 and 2 add up into a 10-minute emo epic with Dreyer dropping these heavy lyrical passages about death near the interstate, fading memorials, lost lives forgotten. And it starts so quietly for a lot of Spute song, with these gentle, chimey guitars softly swelling and growing alongside some soft-spoken words. The track progresses to this great post-rock-ish buildup and eventually reaches an incredible climax with a lot of bite and a lot of drama. Fulton Street 2 carries the momentum of the previous track into some heavier guitar passages. Dreyer is extending these themes of loss and moving on and time passing with snow falling and covering everything. I love the heavy rushes of guitar on this thing. Also, the sound effects of what feels like just 
noisy whooshing throughout the mix. It's kind of like the band is recreating the sound of, of that thick and nasty snow kind of blowing in and taking over everything. It's a pretty great and powerful start to Panorama, and even though when you look at the track listing and the album length of this project, it's nowhere near as grand or even as traumatic a statement as Law Dispute's first couple of records, but Panorama is unique in the Law Dispute discography in that a lot of the tracks on this thing do connect and transition into one another, not just in a narrative sense, which has been the case for a lot of Law Disputes music up until this point. This results in Panorama being one of the more holistic experiences in the Law Dispute discography, which gives me the sense on this album that I'm traveling through an experience or a, a progression of some sort. The next track, Road Night and Grief, seems like a takeoff of the previous two cuts in that we have uh, people depicted on the song in the deep, throes of mourning. It seems like they're grieving the loss of a loved one and wanting to die. The track also features this very melodramatic but also hard-hitting refrain of lifetimes live to die. The cut also features this dreary but killer chord progression, a mellow but very sharp guitar line, and some subtle but great horns that add a lot of flavor to the mix too. A lot of Spewed eventually progresses this into a pretty fantastic instrumental bridge and leaves us with a pretty chilling finishing mantra, road night for stress, promethazine for sleep, a rabbit toy for kids, my deep condolences. Closing words that put our characters in this limbo of dependency to deal with the emotional pain, with one of the two people depicted here taking on a bit more of a caretaker role. The band smartly brings the energy up on the next cut from this thing, Anxiety Panorama, which definitely lives up to the title, with its crashing walls of guitars and drums and shouted lead vocals. Not one of the best emotional ragers Law Dispute has ever penned, but certainly one of the best on this record. The band then transitions into some very low-key spoken word on the track In Northern Michigan, which is not a surprise considering how much of the band's discography up until this point has dabbled in that a little bit or essentially could be boiled down into a, a not spoken word but shouted word. Weirdly enough, Law Dispute is kind of taking a risk at this point in their discography by playing it so soft and subtle on tracks like these. There's actually something pretty compelling about some of the quieter moments on this record, even if it does kind of come off like something you might hear on an old Me Without You record, but with a bit more tension and drama. Especially on this track where you have these droning, swelling, layered, ambient tones kind of taking up a lot of the space in the background. After this point on Panorama, though, I think Law Dispute does start to paint themselves into a corner, even with the band's obvious attempts at bringing more mellow variations into the fold. Instrumentally, views from our bedroom window does leave a lot to be desired. I feel like the band's written better rock passages than this in the past. It also doesn't help that this track features a pretty standard and run-of-the-mill vocal performance from Law Dispute, not to mention the lyrics are kind of underwhelming on this one. They have a lot of flowery language and evocative imagery, but they are very low on uh, emotional and narrative impact. The band loses me once again on the very riffy Footsteps at the Pond, which instrumentally sounds like one of the harder, more edgy tracks off the last Interpol record. The mix is also a total mess. This gigantic distorted swell of guitars in the first leg of the song sounds like a muddled mess. Even though this album continues, I don't really feel like it adds all that much to Law Dispute's artistic profile. The only track that I think comes close to stunning in the second half here is the closing cut, which does a great job of tying up a lot of the narrative themes 
themes up until this point, from Fulton Street to the traffic to the bedroom window, all of these memories from previous tracks replaying over some distant thuddy drums and splashy acoustic guitars. The song does try to provide a nice moment of finality in the track list here, but hearing a lot of these ideas come back full circle only makes me realize that this has not been the best set of La Dispute songs and stories. The perspectives depicted on this album are nowhere near as memorable or as emotionally cutting as they were on Wildlife. And even if it did feature some weak instrumental moments, Rooms of the House was much more spellbinding, lyrically. It also does not help that the closing track on here instrumentally does not progress all that well. I think it kind of ends up spinning its wheels in the mud in the second half. The vocals, even as they get shoutier and a bit more intense, just end up getting lost in the washed-out acoustic guitars. It's kind of anticlimactic, honestly. Still, this is not necessarily a bad record from La Dispute. I can understand hardcore fans being into it, but for someone who's been listening to their music for a while now, it feels like we're reaching a point where their idiosyncratic style is becoming an albatross around their necks. They can't seem to drift away from it because when they do, the results are usually awkward and yet the more they draw it out, the less they seem to get out of it. I'm feeling a decent two strong six on this one. Most people who are criticizing you for giving good reviews to Billie Eilish and Ariana likely haven't listened to the albums themselves. I don't know how likely that is, honestly. Many of them may have, in fact, heard the records just out of curiosity of how they actually turned out. But were they actually open to those albums? I, I, I don't know, honestly. Maybe not. I think there's something about artists like Billie and artists like Ariana that, for some reason when they address super serious topics like the death of someone that you loved or even suicide, uh, for whatever reason, they're not taken as seriously. And sure, it probably has a lot to do with their imaging and their marketing and so on and so forth. I mean, Ariana Grande isn't exactly pushed out there as like a, a really dark artist or something like that. If someone like Chelsea Wolfe, for example, uh, were doing a song about suicide, most likely amongst her fan base, it would be taken a lot more seriously, given that her songs do tend to uh, revolve around uh, darkness and the macabre. So in the case of Billie Eilish and Ariana Grande, maybe their messaging kind of missing with certain groups of people does come down to marketing or maybe just a general dislike or distrust of pop music due to a perceived lack of authenticity or humanity or whatever. At the end of the day, the general dislike for these artists could come down to a lot of things, including just genuinely not liking their music and giving it an honest shot and just still coming out unmoved by it. But I don't know, from what I can tell so far, there are just like a lot of people that uh, are kind of mad that I like these albums, and I don't know why. I mean, it's not like I'm just kind of like jumping the train from experimental or adventurous or uh, cutting edge music just to like, you know, slob the knob of every friggin' pop album that comes out. I mean, I wish for every person that there was out there uh, kind of getting mad at me for liking the Billie Eilish record, they would instead like spend that time, I don't know, listening to the new Shoo Shoo record or something. Hey buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. And it is time for a track review. Quickly want to shout out the tour that I have coming up this May on the West Coast. Uh, the first date is sold out as of right now, but we still have general admission tickets available in Seattle, Portland, San Fran, LA, and San Diego. Link to tickets down below. So Little Nas X. I talked about him not too long ago 
in a video on this channel where I was kind of ticked off about the fact that his hit track, Old Town Road, was kicked off the country charts for apparently not being country enough. And uh, that was a big to-do. That caused quite a stir on the internet. And now we are being introduced to a remix of the song, a new version of the track featuring none other than Billy Ray Cyrus, country star, country singer-songwriter, Billy Ray Cyrus, father of Miley Cyrus. Uh, In my opinion, uh, (laughs) one of the bigger, not the biggest, but one of the bigger opportunists in the music industry, but still. Now he's teaming up with Lil Nas X on this uh, Old Town Road remix. Let's give it a shot. Let's give it a listen. Let's see what it offers. And uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll be bad. Maybe Billy's inclusion will make the song a a bit more country. Is it country enough now? Let's see. Ba-bam. Okay, there we go. Old Town Road remix featuring Billy Ray Cyrus. You know, something I didn't know about the track originally when I was talking about it um, is that that uh, banjo acoustic guitar sample is actually off of a a, a nine-inch nails cut, uh, which some people think seems to add to uh, this song's lack of qualifications as a track that could make it onto the country charts. I don't really agree, but uh, let's talk about what we have here in front of us. I mean, as far as a remix goes, this is a pretty light remix. All that's really truly been remixed is that you have Billy Ray kind of singing the lead vocal of the track a bit on the front end of the song, just to let you know there has been a change of some sort. He harmonizes with Little Nas X over the chorus at one point in the back end of the song, and then you have the Billy Ray verse at the very end of the cut. Uh, Little Nas X's vocals and verses uh, seem pretty much totally unchanged here. Uh, a little bit of a disappointment, though, because a lot of remixes do usually feature the original artist sort of redoing their verse or just kind of bringing something new so the uh, track remains refreshing and you have kind of a, a reason to listen to the remix over the original or just kind of, you know, two separate experiences. But uh, for the most part, Billy's inclusion here is kind of awkward. His singing at the front end of the song is a little rough. Uh, the vocal harmonies go over pretty well and his talk singing slash rapping delivery on the back end of the track is a little off in terms of getting right in the pocket of the groove. The way he finishes off some of these lines, it's just not that smooth. Spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar. Seemed like there was a little bit more of a space in that moment than there truly needed to be. Still though, I think Billy's inclusion into this track does make it a more fun song. And I do think that his delivery over this instrumental Uh, remains mostly unchanged from what you would normally hear him doing on one of his records, which further illustrates my point that I made in the last video about this song, that these genres of music, country and rap, aren't really as far removed from one another as we would like to think, especially these days where you do have a lot of country songs that are embracing hip-hop production aesthetics. And in a lot of ways, we may categorize this track as a hip-hop song, but it has quite a few country elements to it. In my opinion, certainly enough to cross over onto a country chart. It was definitely country enough for Billy Ray to appear on it, and on top of that, just perform in his usual style without having to change it up too much to sound like he is genuinely a part of the song. Sure, performance a little awkward, but his usual stick, usual style, it is here in spades. So overall, okay remix, I guess. And it is time for a track review. Uh, A new single that has come out from JPEG Mafia, featuring... 
A-S, A-S. Uh, I'm not uh, familiar with uh, this featured artist, but still I'm pretty excited to hear what exactly is going on with this new track. Now, as I've said, newly released song from the one and only JPEG Mafia, okay, rapper, singer, producer, extraordinaire, interesting dude, extreme dude. Let's give a listen to this track titled The Who. Uh, it's two minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, we'll see what it has to offer. Ba-bam. <laughs> JPEG Mafia The Who, um, liked that quite a bit. I thought it was decent. I thought the guest singing on here was cool. I thought the beat was actually a somewhat glitchy and sputtering and twittering, but uh, still managed to conjure this very sweet, relaxing sort of chill vibe, which I thought was a welcome change of pace for JPEG Mafia. Uh, in conversations that I've had with him before, he might have actually brought this up just in the interview that I had with him. Um, it, it, he made it pretty clear that part of his mission statement or his ethos behind a lot of his music is that, look, some of this trap stuff and some of the trendy stuff we hear coming out of hip hop and pop rap right now, that can be embraced while still doing something pretty bold and weird and alternative. And I feel like that's essentially what he's achieving on this track. I mean, if we looked at the auto-tuned vocals on this song, if we looked at the kind of nasally cadence uh, JPEG has on this track, as well as his flow, uh, you know, honestly, his delivery on the song kind of reminds me of like a little Uzi Vert track, but not necessarily in, in a bad or an uncomplimentary way. Um, it's a very catchy flow, um, not one of his like better super topical or focused songs or substantive songs lyrically, but you know, it, it seems like a lot of the bars on here focus around the writing and the creative process and, and basically fame and, uh, um, I, I guess, uh, uh, the position artists sort of see themselves in talking about selling out, uh, making money, so on and so forth, saying he's going to sell out like the who, that he uh, will write a hit on a bus and then he'll end up in a coupe, uh, or that he'll uh, what, write a hit while he's taking, <laughs> while he's taking a, a you-know-what a deuce. Um, so the lyrics for the most part seem pretty tongue in cheek and funny and basically talking about, uh, in, in a very tangential way, uh, JPEG's, uh, creative process, I guess, or at least what's going into, uh, his mindset or his, uh, progression, uh, to, I guess, a larger profile, like the production, like the vocals, um, thought the guest singing was pretty cool. Is it my favorite JPEG mafia song? you know, or again, concept topic or anything like that. Not necessarily in that respect. I feel like that's where this track really sort of falters. But again, I think that may in fact go back to, um, what he had told me, uh, I think just this past weekend that, uh, you know, he's got some new stuff coming out, but, um, it's not going to be new, new, new. And, uh, this to me doesn't seem like something that he would like put a huge promotion behind or anything like that, because it, it seems like a pretty chill, casual track with some cool ideas, uh, but definitely like not on the level of some of the bolder and more hard hitting cuts off of veteran or something like that. So, uh, not a bad song, you know, not a bad cut. The who JPEG mafia. And that is going to be it for the needle drop podcast. Everyone. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Anthony Fantano here. Shout out to Jonah for assembling this episode as well as he does every episode of the Needle Drop podcast. Uh, also, you can hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop, a Fantano on Instagram, 
Also find us on youtube.com slash the needle drop, youtube.com slash Fantano, the needle drop.com to not miss a single piece of content that we put out. And we will catch you guys in the next episode. Make sure to also, whatever platform you're listening to this on, you're reviewing, you're rating, you're subscribing so you don't miss a single one. And uh, you're the, 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 you're the best. Anthony Fantano, uh, the needle drop podcast forever. Uh-huh.